Hello, everybody. This is Joshua Hatton with One Nation Under Whiskey Podcast. I'm joined today and I'm joined as always by my good friend, my business partner, Mr. Jason Johnston Yellen. Still has water in his mouth. Are you going to swallow that or just what's going on here? I thought we were going to be better. I thought we were going to be best. Hashtag be best. You're drinking. Yeah, I thought you were too, but you, you drank water in an inopportune time. No spit takes from me today. Down the hatch. <laughs> uh, so, how you how you did diddly doing? Good, good. I have to tell you, oh. the other night, my wife and I reached Shabbat after a, a, a long, torturous five days, which somehow were worse than the previous five days of the week, hmm. which those were torturous as well. And and we sat down on on Friday evening. And we watched a live broadcast of Lyle Lovett and Chris Isaac. Ah, yes. And it was so interesting because they did it remotely, just as we record our podcast remotely. Mm -hmm. They couldn't play songs together. They couldn't have their bands because, you know, social distancing and you don't get to go into anyone's house anymore. Mm -hmm. And so they just kind of took it in turns to play a song solo, and then they would chat, and then they would play a song solo, and it was magnificent. It was just okay. so nice. It was such a good time, and and then because it was such a good time, my my wife and I afterwards put on Deadpool. Oh and yes, 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 yes. For this reason, our thirteen-year-old is desperate desperate to watch Deadpool. So is the 10-year-old, to be honest, but the 13-year-old. And so my wife and I watched Deadpool Uh through the eyes of parents of a 13-year-old who wants to watch it. So your eyes, you watched it through your eyes. That's what (laughs) you're saying. But but here's, no, I'm not, because here's the the interesting part of that. (laughs) Here's the, here's the Are you cosplaying another family, like through the <laughs> eyes of our friends who also have a 13-year-old? <laughs> no, it was like this. Tamara and I, my, my wife Tamara, Tamara and I have watched Deadpool together multiple times, mm-hmm. but we've only ever watched it as two people enjoying Deadpool as a movie. Yeah. Right. This time we were watching it as our parental selves, asking ourselves, mm-hmm. is there any of this we could show the 13-year-old? Mm-hmm. The answer is no, there no. isn't. No. There's, there's no part. But this leads me to my question. Did you ever watch Once Upon a Deadpool with your kids? You know, I did. And I've got to tell you, it, Deadpool needs to be dirty. I... I <laughs> I felt that that Once Upon a Deadpool was so milk toast, so just. Eh. And so that was the conversation tomorrow and I were having, which was, if you took out the non-kid or young person appropriate bits mm. of this, there's no movie. There, there's nothing at the heart of that Be- because the, the theme, the overarching narrative is an adult theme. And I didn't know what would be left of the movie. The movie would be like a 20 minute cut of things flying through the air. And so, <laughs> <laughs> 
And so it, mm-hmm. it was interesting. It was really interesting. And so, yes, our conclusion at the end of it was two-part. A, the 13-year-old doesn't have a snowball's hell and chance of seeing this movie, probably before he's 18. Personally, I, I think I would do it at 16. But anyhow, um, that's just between us. And and secondly, we're not going to compromise and watch Once Upon a Deadpool. It's no, it's it's, it's got to be the it's whole the thing. movie or bust. So let's let's rewind the clock to Jason at thirteen years of age. What were mm-hmm. you watching at oh, thirteen years of age? No, my my parents had a strict lockdown right. on on the VHS mm-hmm. uh, movies that I was allowed. No, meanwhile, my my very best friend. Ryan came from, he was the eldest of six, Mm -hmm. and he was the one blazing the trail. And his parents were nowhere near as restrictive as my parents. Yeah. And so occasionally he would tell me, like, I remember when he saw Beverly Hills Cop (laughs) with Eddie Murphy, and my parents had seen it. And I told my parents, Ryan has seen this, and I would like to see it. And I was probably... 14, 15 at that point. Mm. I said, I'd really like to see this movie. And they said, no, no chance. None at all. It's mm. not appropriate for you. And I was kind of like, well, that that's not cool. But I, I never I never saw it. And so, wow. yeah. Wow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. If, if, if we could turn back the clock and if Deadpool existed for me at my eldest son's age, yeah. <laughs> No, I would have less than a snowball's chance in hell of ever seeing that movie. Oh, yeah. Not, not. I'm guessing it wasn't the same in your house. It was not the same in my house. <laughs> yes, it, it was all the R-rated all the time. And it was... And it was From one, what age? From what age? Um, that's a good question. You, well, perfect. I have the perfect answer. Uh, the mm-hmm. movie Alien, the first Alien movie, came out mm-hmm. in 1978, I want to say. I think it might have been 77, 78. And that was an R-rated movie, and my mother took me to see it. And I remember I was so obsessed with the xenomorphs that I had one of the the tall, like 18-inch tall uh, xenomorphs that had, when you grabbed the back of their head, it had a little, a little like lever, a little handle. When you squeezed it, the xenomorph mouth would open, and the second mouth would come out. And I remember I have seen those. And I remember going to school on picture day, and I refused to go in and have my picture taken unless it was with my xenomorph. And I was wearing a tan turtleneck with a dark brown leather vest. My eight is enough big bushy like wannabe haircut and uh and the xenomorph and and that was it like i was obsessed so yeah yep yep age age six age five whatever it was (laughs) that's unbelievable gosh i remember there was one night my parents had brought home enter the dragon oh yeah, Um, yeah and i i think i've got the name right of the the bruce lee movie and we're watching this Bruce Lee movie, and obviously, I would have been uh, ten or younger mm. because I I remember which house we were in, mm. and it was a house that we only lived in until I was ten years old. So I would have been ten or younger, and my mom had just picked up a kung fu movie, mm. and and so this this would have been the the early early eighties, no later than the mid eighties, and we're watching the kung fu movie, and there's a love scene in it, 
And okay. this this woman straddles Bruce Lee and and takes off her top and her and her bazier. Wow. And and my parents, both of them, kind of looked at me the exact same time as I was just like, you know, no idea where to look. <laughs> and uh, and my mum said, Jason, cover your eyes. And and I literally put my hands over my eyes and waited for that scene to be done. Did you at Open a finger or two to kind of like oh, no, peek no, at the no, boobies? No. Really? No. Oh, no. I was too mortified oh, by wow. what was happening in front wow. of me. And, and so, yeah, I covered, covered my eyes. And then when the scene was over and my mom had said, okay, you can, you can uncover your eyes now. They both said, you know, we're thinking this movie probably isn't for you. And so run along and, and play or head to bed or what have you. Oh. Um and I and I was more than happy to get out of that situation. I was like, "Peace out." Was I'll it, be, I'll be were, sleeping if anybody needs me. Were you happy to get out of that situation because you were taught that that wasn't proper and you shouldn't be looking at it, or that you kind of wanted to look at it, but man, that's weird looking at that with your parents in the room. There was definitely the overall weirdness yeah. of of boobs being on the TV screen while my parents were were yeah. sitting in the yeah. living room. Yeah. Like that that was just out of body level uncomfortable. But but even at that age it wasn't something that was really on my radar. Like that wasn't there you go. something of interest. I'll also tell you this. I'll tell you this very quickly and then we'll 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 get over to Kara. Sorry for keeping you waiting here, Kara. <laughs> when I was but a boy and I was in the this, this same house, so I know I was 10 or younger. The, the A-team came to British oh, yeah. TV, yeah. right? B.A. Baracus, uh, Hannibal, and uh, Mad Dog Murdoch, and Face. Can't leave Face out. Face was my brother's favourite. Oh, right. <laughs> and, and my brother, of course, is seven years younger than me. And so he would have been three or younger when it was released. And and it was, it was released on to, like... Sunday afternoon TV, definitely a weekend afternoon TV. And my mum had said, let me watch this show first and see if it's appropriate. Mm -hmm. And we all know, right, the A-team, like lots of guns, lots of making of of machines, a lot of shooting of those guns, but nobody getting shot, no blood on the screen, Mm -hmm. right? Just kind of guys who roll and then they don't move anymore. <laughs> and and my my mum sent me out the house, uh, out, out the room while she watched it and and made the decision on whether a weekend afternoon uh, showing of the A Team wow. TV series uh, was appropriate. Now the good news is it got the thumbs up, but she wasn't overly happy with the level of gun violence in it. You know. Growing up in America, that was just that was just par for the course. But I can understand, you know, growing up in Scotland, growing up in a country where guns just are not a thing. Even police officers don't have guns. Like, yep. I, I get that. I get how that could be alarming. Yep. 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 It, it was interesting for us because it, I first noticed this, you know, as a as a late teen coming over to the United States that American TV was perfectly fine with violence at, at really any time of the day or night. Mm-hmm. But but sex was totally off the table. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, when I stopped being 10 and, and became some other ages, the BBC was always good for a Saturday night 
movie, you know, you know, BBC Two, because it would be art house, mm. and you you would get to see some boobs on the TV uh, after what we call the watershed. You, you have the watershed over here. No, I don't think so. Like. You you would get to a point at say nine p.m. where it was just assumed children oh, were off to oh, bed and, yeah, and yeah, programming. Yeah, yeah. Ten p.m. You know? Ten p.m. Yep. Okay, ten yep, p.m. over 10 here. PM. And so the, these art house movies that you might find, and and so yes, as a, as a you know <laughs> fourteen fifteen year old with parents who wouldn't let me watch Beverly Hills Cop. I would be watching black and white art house movies on BBC Two, just <laughs> waiting for a flash of boob. <laughs> it's like, please, please let this be the night. Please let this be the night. Um, and they, they were, they were, they were, they were. You know, sometimes they would come through for a young man uh, in need. <laughs> Indeed, <So. laughs> I require a boob. Um, huh. But yeah, out of an hour and a half movie, you would maybe get you know fifteen seconds of boob, but it would it would carry over to the next week's. Um, lockdown, not lockdown. We're in lockdown. <laughs> weekend, okay. The next next weekend. Let, let me let me get us off of the the movie conversation with this. Last night we and I don't know why we didn't start this sooner. Uh, mostly because we're dumb, I think. But last night we started. I'll uh, second that. Easy. Last night we started a what I hope will become a a COVID tradition. that's a funny series of words right there Um, Uh where we said you know what let's do because we we've had family movie nights and we've had Mm -hmm. plenty of them but what we never did was we're gonna have family movie night on the sunday and every week someone new gets the chance to pick the movie i've got terrible news for you joshua Mm -hmm. It only ends one way. I have a feeling about this, but let me tell you. <laughs> I got to pick... We, we used to have that in our house. Yeah, yeah, it didn't work. Yeah. No, it went the way of the dodo. Yeah. Um, well, I, I was just done with people crying every Saturday night. Oftentimes me. Well, have you considered your... Oh, oftentimes you. All right. So it's not you picking bad movies, it's your kids picking bad movies making you cry? Let's... Little column A, little column B. Well, I picked the movie last night. I gave Heidi the chance as, you know, the, the matriarch of the house. She said, it's too much pressure. You have to do it. <laughs> See, so, she gets it. <laughs> <laughs> so I picked Stand By Me. All right. Yep. Suck a dick. That's a, that's a line in that movie that's... Uh, oh, yeah. Suck a, suck a fat one. That's, I remember that line. Oh, yeah. There's another great line where it says... where um. Uh, Corey Feldman says, ah, but a pile of shit has a thousand eyes. It's a great, great movie. I, I clearly, you know, my perspective, I remember it, seeing that as a boy. Mm-hmm. Um, also, the, the Stephen King novel is fantastic as mm-hmm. well. And I was obviously into Stephen King as a 14-year-old. But... I, I could see how I would respond to that movie as a teenage boy watching these teenage boys being teenage boys. Mm-hmm. How did how did your girls do? What, what was their perspective? Yeah, they were they were fine. I mean, yes, it's rated R, but the TV <laughs> rating system. Calm down, calm down, calm down. The the TV rating system has it as a a TV fourteen. Hmm. Right. So. 
and I think the TV 14 comes from, you know, there, there, there is no nudity, right? There's no overt violence happening. Oh yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's of course, you know, vulgar language and suggestive language and all of that. And, mm-hmm. you know, my girls weren't too, too fussed by it. I, I was surprised that, you know, they would have seen a group of four 12-year-old boys smoking cigarettes and saying, why are these 12-year-old boys smoking cigarettes? And no, that didn't come up. So, yeah, all in huh. all, everybody, everybody enjoyed it. And, and I'll tell you, it really, it really held up. It really brought back so much for me, personally. It, it's definitely one I've wanted to revisit for yeah. myself. I, I don't know if we in our house could pull off the 13-year-old and the 10-year-old seeing it. But it, it's definitely on my list. I, I will tell you this very quickly. I think we've said very quickly a few times here. A few years ago, it was the, the winter holidays. Mm-hmm. We, were, we were deep in December. And my wife and I thought, oh, this is probably the right time for our boys to see Home Alone. And, and we put on Home Alone. Mm-hmm. And our boys asked us to turn it off because... Because it's such a terrible him, movie. <laughs> Kevin being abandoned oh. by himself it's at scary. home. Yeah. Scary is the word. Yeah. They found it scary. It was like a kid's horror movie. We didn't even get to the bad guys trying to break in. We only got to the point where he was bouncing on the bed, making himself pancakes and taking whipped cream straight from the can. That they didn't like. <laughs> Let alone what was coming next. <laughs> wow. Yeah, they were really... And, and we haven't revisited that movie since then. Like, any time that, that movie gets any mention, our boys look at each other and kind of shudder a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, from that perspective, I completely understand. Also, I've just never liked it. So, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I can appreciate it from that standpoint as well. <laughs> he was so annoying, that kid. Ugh. Okay. <laughs> Precocious, I think, is the word, but anyway. So we, we've, we've gone on probably for a good 18 minutes not having mentioned anything about whiskey, not having mentioned anything about our amazing guest. That sounds um, like us. Yeah, it does. It does. It does sound like us. But, you know, I'm so excited to have Carol Lang here with us. And it was you, it was actually your idea to bring her on to the podcast. I was going to say, yeah, do you mind if I take the floor yeah, please, yeah. On, on this one? Because it's, when you and I started this podcast, low those many years ago, we really wanted to have a focus on independent bottlers. Mm-hmm. And, and in the early days of our interviews, that's exactly where our focus was. And we had David Sturk mm-hmm. and we had Mark Watt. Uh, was it Stephen from uh, Gardner McPhail? Richard. Right? right? From- Richard Urquhart. It was Richard Urquhart. Okay, Richard Urquhart. So, so we, had, we had him on from, from Gardner McPhail. Do we have others? We've clearly talked to Ollie along the way about uh, single malts of Scotland. Mm-hmm. So... So we, we realized that we couldn't just have the focus be on independent bottlers. And so, you know, we, we expanded uh, beyond that. But what's kind of happened is in expanding beyond that, it's been a while since we've had an independent bottler on the podcast. Too long. Yeah. And so whiskey 
show put on by the Whiskey Exchange, mm-hmm. one of the very first main stage events I watched was, was an independent bottler's tasting hosted by our, our very good friend, Billy Abbott, who's a, a lovely, lovely human being. That is. And, and he hosted Ollie Chilton, good friend, mm-hmm. Mark Watt, good friend, <laughs> and Cara Lang, who we'd never met. Yep, yep. <laughs> and, and, and so in watching it, I was like, we've had Billy on the pod, we've had Ollie on the pod, we've had Mark on the pod. Mark's even taken over the pod with Jess uh, for an episode. And we've never even spoken to Caroline. And so I watched that main stage and I really liked what Cara had to say. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she was she was very interesting. She was obviously very knowledgeable. And she was very honest. Mm. And one thing that you and I are always drawn to is people who will talk transparently. Mm-hmm. Yep. And and so, you know, the, the week I, I let I let the week of the whiskey show run because, you know, obviously it was seven days and it was fantastic and I loved tuning into it and I loved watching some sessions and we were a part of some sessions and, and watching some other main stage events. And so it was really good. And so I knew Carol would be busy through all of that. And so I waited until that week was over and I emailed her and I said, Hi Cara. Watched you on the main stage, saw you talking with, you know, three good friends of ours, and really regret the fact that Joshua and I have never met you, never talked to you. Yeah. We would love, love, love to have you on the podcast. And I did. I gave it its Sunday name. I didn't give it its uh, its known nickname, Padcost. Uh, I did keep it to its Sunday name of podcast. <laughs> and and Cara wrote back and she said, oh, I would love to be on, on the podcast. And we sorted out some dates. And lo and behold, we had such a wonderful conversation with Caroline. And I and I got to I got to pivot back to some of the things she'd started talking about on that main stage mm. when she was sharing the time with two other guests and and the wonderful Billy. Yeah. And and nothing was off the table with her. And yeah, it was it was just really nice. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And so as always happens, now we're saying, okay, when restrictions are lifted and when travel happens again, you know, Joshua and I are clearly going to be in Glasgow in the future. Let's meet up. Yeah. Let's let's talk over a dram. Let's you know let's taste some things together. I'm I'm so excited for that to happen. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so yeah, same. as as you and I always say, the independent bottling world is a wonderful world. We don't think of ourselves as competitors with one another. No. We think of ourselves all occupying the same little niche. And if we can help one another, we do help one another. It's so nice to talk to other independent bottlers, and, and Cara gets into this in the interview, where <laughs> it, it's great to be in the whiskey industry. It's great to select casks, but so little of our day-to-day business is selecting casks. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and you start to have logistic problems, and you start to have bottling problems, and you start to have... She, she does give a horror story 
later in the interview yes. that I will say nothing about. Yeah. Oh, that's but, crazy. Yeah, dear <laughs> listener, your jaw will drop. Be prepared. <laughs> um, it was hard to formulate questions after that little horror story. Mm-hmm. And so, so yeah, so it is, it's nice to talk with somebody who knows this industry the way we know the industry. They see the same things yeah. that yep. we see. Um, and so for your, your first time talking to, to Cara, what were your takeaways? And then we'll, then we'll give the floor to Cara. Well, firstly, I, I personally wish I just had more time to be part of the conversation because, and just so listeners are aware you know, the first half of the conversation includes both me and Jason, but because the UK falls back, you know, does rewinds the clock a week before we do in the US, it screwed up my calendar. So I thought I was going to have a good two hours. We ended up just having the hour and, and I had to leave early. You know, what I really enjoyed about it was was hearing this as, hearing from her as a third generation person within Douglas yep. Lang and and hearing her story of of how she came into it and and you can hear that it was it was clearly life changing in a way but but a life aligning as well like she she had no interest in whiskey that wasn't her thing and you know you'll hear about this when she talks about it and and then everything just comes together and and it it felt as if she's now in the place that she was meant to be, right? Mm. At least that's the sense that I got. And, and I just, I loved hearing that. I think that, you know, whiskey business aside, labeling issues, warehousing stuff, all of that aside, I loved hearing that family story. That I, I just thought that, that was great. Well, think about a company that's 62 years old and and Cara having, you know, that, that, that benefit, that pleasure of being the granddaughter mm. of the founder. And I cast my mind, you know, 50 more years into the future for us and and can't help but wonder, will there be a third generation mm-hmm. looking after single cask nation? What what might that look like? And what, and, and Cara gets into this in the interview as well, what might we have laid down that, we will never see, that we will never taste, <laughs> that will be uh-huh. released by a future generation. And that's that's an exciting thought. And so I, I love the fact that Kara is that granddaughter. She is that third generation. She is living that life yeah. of agreements that were made, casks that were laid down. But But again, as she says, that realigning, that recent realigning of mm. the company mm-hmm. that that presented its own challenges. So yeah. anyway, I, I could keep going here. I, I'm going to stop. I'm going to edit myself. Um, one thing before we throw the, the floor over to Cara, later in the interview, uh, we had a, a, a couple, a couple of very small technical issues. And, and you will hear Joshua in post had to, to make a, a few maneuvers to make things work for us. Uh, please know that the technical issues were out of our control. And Joshua has done a lovely job of splicing audio together. You honor me, sir. Off to Carolang.
you want to get us started here, Jason? Yeah, absolutely. The reason I've called you here today, Cara, is uh, I thoroughly enjoyed, as I said in the email, I thoroughly enjoyed uh, you being on the main stage at Whiskey Live, the virtual Whiskey Live show. And and you really got me it wasn't. It wasn't Whiskey Live. It was just the Whiskey Show. Whiskey or Whiskey, oh, whiskey Exchange. Show. I was London thinking, Show. Yes, I was. Yeah. I was thinking it was. It was live. Yeah. Technically, um, I was using it in a verb. Um, <laughs> Fair enough. So, <laughs> Fair enough. So the, the Whiskey Show, the virtual Whiskey Show main stage, you were you were in a, an independent bottler presentation, tasting through one of the packs, but in listening to you, you uncovered so many aspects of the independent bottling business that it it really had me reaching out to Joshua and saying, why haven't we had Cara on the podcast? We've made a terrible, terrible mistake here. And and so we are we are remedying that mistake with this conversation. And so the the first question I've got for you is what is it like being third generation? at Douglas Lang. You've, um, you know, there's clearly benefits, there's clearly challenges. Well, what's it like for you in that realm? You've, you've summed it up well with um, lots of positives, lots of challenges. Um, <laughs> the the positives definitely are, um, I, that, like it is, it's, it's quite special working in a business that your grandpa set up. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is, it's, it's great working with family members and being able to, to really influence and, and build a really good team of passionate people around you. That's, that's definitely um, a massive positive of, of, I guess, the family business aspect. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that the, the challenge probably is the pressure because you, you literally you live and breathe it. Um, there's no downtime. Um, whether you're on holiday or weekends or evenings, you're you're always thinking about it. The flip side to that is um, I genuinely love whiskey, and I, it wasn't always the case, but I love drinking it. I love talking about it. I love working with it. So that's that definitely helps get a bit of balance. I think if you didn't have that, you'd probably really resent the the working weekends, working holiday, <laughs> working holiday, working evenings. But it's. Um, the positives definitely outweigh the challenges, um, and and thankfully, um, Fred, my dad, and our chairman has given given me and Chris, uh, my husband, who's our CEO, increasing free reign to really take the the business to the next level, which is very much what we're working on, and it's it's hard work, but it's a lot of fun in the process. So, lots of positives. Um, I'd be lying if I if I said that working with my husband and my father was always a dream. <laughs> there are days, many days, where it is it's far from the case. Uh, when you were growing up, did you did you have plans? Did you have did you have hopes or desires that you would come into the company? Were you the opposite side of that? Did you think your your career would take you in a very different direction? I don't totally remember. I, I have early memories of um, being very young and having the cold or flu and being given hot toddies and just thinking the whiskey <laughs> aspect of it was the most ridiculously disgusting stuff. Um, and I certainly, I've got a lot of memories of growing up with 
um, sort of leading lights from the whisky industry um, coming to the house or, or being involved or referring to some of them as uncle this and uncle that. Um, so I was always around it. Um, I, sorry, um, I, I don't think I ever really thought I would get into it and certainly the older I got, um, I had no interest in getting into the whisky industry. Uh, mm. Polar opposite, I really didn't like it and at uni and in my first couple of jobs um, had no no intention of, of drifting into whisky. Um, it was only when I went to White Mackay, um, mainly with the hope of, of landing a marketing job in one of their vodka brands, because at the time I drank vodka and I was passionate about <laughs> vodka, which which is now a very strange thing to get my head around. Um, but it was yeah. there that they moved me um, quite quickly onto the Jura brand. And thereafter, uh, it just literally spiralled from there so that was in 2006 um, and ever since it's uh, it's properly been part of every day of my life <laughs> right there's no getting away from that no were you did you come out of university and go into spirits or I, was there even no, a moment there I strangely enough I did my dissertation in my final year of uni um, in I based it on on the spirits category, but very much on youth drinking culture within spirits. So nothing mm. on mm. heritage and provenance and everything you'd think of with whiskey. Um, and then my first job was in a, a marketing or advertising agency through in Edinburgh, where I did work on some spirit brands, but not it wasn't something I was specifically looking for and it was when I moved back to Glasgow um, because this job at White Mackay came up and just sounded quite interesting and mm. I was quite keen to get to Glasgow and and thought well vodka's a fun category I did my dissertation in in kind of the vodka category that it just felt a good fit um, and I was disappointed when I didn't get to work on one of their vodka brands I, I was really quite disgruntled at being put on Jura on my first day um, and yet I ended up leaving White Mackay because they took me off Jura and put me onto a non-whisky brand and I was like can't do this um, so it's amazing how it just it it does I mean Fred always says to me whisky's in your blood you know your grandpa loved it I love it um, yeah I've married someone that loves it. Our children seem to show an unusual interest and, and enthusiasm for whiskey. Um, yeah. But there was definitely a period in my life where um, I wanted to work in anything other than whiskey. But it does, mm. it just, it gets to you and you, you. I think it just grows on you. And, and I definitely believe in your, from a, a taste perspective, you go on that whiskey journey and, in truth, I'd now really struggle to drink a 40% strength Jura whiskey, but I remember I'd find it like like diluting juice. Um, <laughs> but I don't know if I'm allowed to say that. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, but yeah. Um, I remember my first few days and weeks at White Mackay finding Jura really challenging, even at 40%, mm -hmm. thinking this is, this is fiery and like just too much. Um, but it's amazing how now I I would appreciate those flavours and I'd want more of them and I'd want it at a higher strength because it's just what my palate's got used to and now now demands. So so what what was the one what was the one whiskey that that switched you from being passionate about 
clear spirits to to brown spirits? In truth, probably Jura. Um, it was definitely my my stepping stone into whiskey. Fred assures me in all these hot toddies it was um, it was either eighteen to twenty five year old great quality blend or poor Ellen I was being given in them. Um, <laughs> but I so I suppose they were my my first tasters. But um, I mean it was it was definitely Jura. Um, which probably uh-huh. actually is is a good one to to start with. Um, you know, it's a sort of fairly typical Highlander, so it was reasonably mellow and gentle mm-hmm. um, and a good introduction. Um, and it was great because Richard Patterson spent a lot of time with me, and um, and Fred likewise at the time was. I think quite enthused by the fact I was showing or beginning to show an enthusiasm for whiskey. So they both kind of nurtured it and encouraged it. And um, yeah, it just from there uh, developed massively and quite quickly. And, you know, at White Mackay got to try their other brands and probably there had the first chance of trying whiskey straight out of the cask in a warehouse, which is something I still love. I know none of us get to do it as much anymore, but um, to be able to get the Valinche and have the cask opened, dip the Valinche and a dram straight from the cask, um, there's nothing quite like it. It's very special. Agreed. Agreed. Although we, we always tell uh, the nation we never select casks in that setting because it is far too romantic and everything tastes wonderful uh-huh. straight from it's a cask. Yeah. It is, the worst it whiskeys is. taste amazing. Uh-huh. <laughs> and you, you are, you're right, it's, um, it, it's it, it, you are thrown by it because it is such a special experience. But I remember doing it one day at Bowmore and genuinely believing there was ripe bananas floating around this cask because mm. it was like drinking I've never drunk banana juice, but it's, it, it was just so vanilla rich and banana and sweet and wonderful. Um, and I suspect, again, that was me being thrown by the fact I was standing in their vaults beneath sea level and it was all perfect and romantic and I believed the marketing hype. <laughs> I'll buy it all. Yeah. I'll take it all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so... So coming out of White Mackay then and, and being taken off of Jura and, and being offered vodka, how did Douglas Lang come about? I then had a, a stint at Bowmore. Um, so I moved, uh, I finished up at White Mackay in uh, late 2009 and in January 2010 um, joined Morris and Bowmore, obviously under um, Beans and Tory. Um, as brand manager for Bowmore, which was just wonderful. Um, mm. And whilst Jura played a key role in getting me into whiskey, um, Bowmore absolutely sealed that I would never work in any other industry. Wow. Um, I, I had, um, it's terrible, I had three, three and a half great years at Morrison Bowmore, uh, looking after Bowmore and indeed Glen Geary, which I mm-hmm. totally grew to love. It's it's such an underrated Highland malt, but it's agreed. It's phenomenal, um, and uh, yeah, there I just 
got more and more into whisky and again learned from some great people, got to visit all their experience, uh, experiences, got to visit all their distilleries, um, had so many chances to try uh, whisky straight out of the cask. To be honest, that's that's the only times really I've I've been able to do it. Um, in here, we we probably like yourselves get the the sample bottles, like uh-huh. much like these, um, uh-huh. and and try them at our desks where it's not nearly as romantic. But um, yeah, it was after it was after Morrison Bowmore um, when I then joined Douglas Lane in middle of two thousand and thirteen. Mm. Um, and that was my first experience of an independent bottler and, and just found it a wildly different experience, but um, quite an exciting one because it's just mm-hmm. so varied and you get involved in every aspect of it. I've got, I've got so many questions and I, and I don't know if they're all appropriate. I'm sure you can edit them out then. <laughs> in, in returning to the family business right was there was there a part where your your dad was kind of like yes you know today's my day or was there well let's hold on a second you don't have independent bottling experience here like what were your thinkings in coming into the family Mm. and what we what were your dads and obviously at that time there were more owners uh, under yeah. the umbrella what was that kind of back and forth like um great question i don't think i've ever actually properly been asked i actually i really didn't want I think to leave because it's probably inappropriate no well I, we I think enough time is probably now settled or the dust has settled Good. um i didn't really want to leave morris and bowmore i was very happy um and um career-wise it was it was all Great, but um, obviously uh, Fred parted ways with his brother and his brother mm-hmm. left the business and that was all in mid, well, early to mid 2013 and and Fred, um, who had never ever put pressure on me to show signs of interest in whiskey or the family business, um, sort of indicated to me it would it would mean a lot to him and it would help him and the future of the business if if um, I would consider joining. So whilst I didn't want to leave Morris and Bowmore, it was a hard one to say no mm. to your dad. And, and, and also because it was a, I realised it was an exciting opportunity. The positive is I also realised that whilst outer, outwardly Douglas Lane had a, a great reputation, I think, and looked like a very well-oiled machine. I knew from um, family conversations that that was far from the case and mm-hmm. that it would be really hard work. Um, so it was mixed feelings. I was I was so sad to leave Morris and Bowmore and to leave. I, I'll only ever have positive memories of my time there and working on Bowmore. Um, and it's still whenever samples of Bowmore or Glengarry or Ochintoshin come in, um, I'm like I've got first dibs on them. Um, <laughs> but um, it was it was it was the right time, and actually, probably in hindsight, it was the perfect time because then things changed massively at, at Morrison Bowmore Distillers, and yep, sure. um, and and I joined in here at Douglas Lane at the right time because it was. Uh, we we basically had to rebuild the company. Um, sure. 
which was definitely challenging. I mean, the first, um, I would say from 2013 through till middle end of 2014, it felt like like a new business actually whilst whilst Fred thankfully had retained Douglas Lane and our our heritage of having been around since 1948 we had a a hell of a job to do I I can't believe how long ago it was now this 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 news whenever I think about about that split it's always just last year for me I know. Every new year, it's last year. It's, so it's, and Cara was already in the company. Yeah, like, wow. It's just... No, really... I know. Well, it, was, it, happened, um, it happened just or not long before Chris and I got married. So, and we've just had our seventh wedding anniversary. So I oh, too, I'm a bit like, how on earth? Where has that time <laughs> gone? But I think that might just be a sign of getting older, sadly. That is also true. That, that is, is true. That's a thing. And you mentioned earlier kids. How old are your kids? Uh, we've got a three-year-old boy and a five-year-old girl. Um, wow. And it's amazing when you, when, again, we're, we're not indoctrinating them and, and whatever career path they choose uh, will encourage. But if you say to our five-year-old, what are the ingredients in whiskey? She goes, water, barley, yeast. So, like, it took me till I was about 20 to know that. So um, she's doing quite well. Uh, yeah, I, I always tell a story about coming home from Catoctin Creek Distilling Company, just an hour and three quarters up the road from me. And I had a little sample bottle that was perfectly clear. And I gave it to my then five-year-old. And I said, I said, what's the one thing we know about this sample? And he looked at it and he said, it's, it's never been in wood. Amazing. And, uh, wow. and, and, and that's the kid who has no interest in being part of the company. Very but his younger brother has his eyeballs on the company and uh, helps me in my office a lot. So there's your succession plan. Yeah. That's, Nailed. That's it. Go. My, my daughters don't have much, much interest, though earlier on, my, my 12-year-old, who was then maybe five, I put a a Glenn Farkless 105 in front of her. And I said, well, you know, because she always wanted to smell the glass. And so what do you smell? And, and I'll never forget this tasting note. She said, it smells like, well, she said the fall, but autumn. She said, yeah. it, it, it smells like the fall. It was, it was the leaves. It was that crispness in the air, that sort of heavy kind of earthy smell that you can kind yeah. of get sometimes. I said, "Oh my gosh, this this is it. This is the future of, of the company. But, but this no is the interest. next generation. Yeah, not not anymore. Yeah, she's, she's no. That's impressive. Anything. Well, I wouldn't have either at that age. So there's yeah. maybe hope still. Right, <laughs> right. They got to go plow their own furrow, make their way back. Yeah. Well, and, um, and, George, and and learn from other companies' mistakes. That that for mm. uh, Fred was a big thing of." Uh, I don't really want to bring you in fresh out of uni. Like, go elsewhere, see what other industries are like, and ideally make mistakes elsewhere and cost other companies money. That, that's George Grant's line. Mm-hmm. His dad sent him away from Glen Farkless to go make his mistakes on somebody else's dime. Really? I didn't and know then that. return to Glen Farkless. Yeah. Yeah, the dad did the same thing there. It's that um, canny Scottish attitude we've all got. <laughs> Um, so, so another question for me, Joshua. I'm, I'm really, you know, well, taking I, over the questions. I've got literally hundreds of questions, and I'm letting you do that. I do have other questions, but I, I, I love the direction that we're going in. So I'm not stepping on your toes. Just remember, 
and, and just so you're aware, um, Kara, I have to get off um, five minutes to the hour. You two can carry on, but because of the, the hour difference, my, my whole calendar today is messed up. So, Okay, anyway. no problem. Cool. Um, so, yeah, I'll, I'll continue with the thread here. Um, you're, you're talking about coming into the company and, and looking it over. And on one hand, it, it almost being like a new company. In terms of that strategy, as, as you sat there of that day, 2013 into 2014, what did you, and obviously Fred, and obviously Chris, was Chris in at that point, Chris? He joined not long after me. So yeah, okay. yeah, basically, yeah. So within that, within that window there, what, what did you decide going forth? What did the industry look like? What did you want to respond to in that time? And what did you, it's not a word I actually like using, so I'm surprised I'm using it right now. What did you strategize for the, the next five years? Well, yeah, <laughs> I, I, hate, well. Um, I hate strategy. I, yeah, and it's strategi- a I, Yeah, it's not, it's, it, and I'm not very good at it. Luckily, Chris is. Um, <laughs> so he, he and I quite quickly, he thinks one way, I think quite differently, but it, it seems to work and... Um, I think having been in bigger companies, we recognised that um, Douglas Lane's biggest strength was also its curse, and it's these single-cast bottlings, which are so wonderful, um, but they are also so inconsistent. And we really struggled with that because we'd been used to... Chris also is from the whisky industry, and we'd been used to brands where you build the brand and consumers fall in love with more 12 years old and they can get it time and time again. And we kind of saw that in Big Pete. Mm. So we, mm-hmm. we quickly realised that, yes, the single-cast business is great, um, but it's by their very nature, they come and they go, and it's quite difficult to get consumers and distributors and retailers falling in love with them because... Yeah you offer no continuity. So we quite quickly realised that Big Pete was a, a, a great member of the family and we needed to really nurture and develop him. Um, um, but we absolutely didn't want to lose sight of the single cask side, which which Fred had actually brought to Douglas Lane when the company was in a not great position um, in the, must have been the sort of mid-90s. Um, when the the blend market, um, particularly out in Asia, had just gone belly up and uh, Fred recognised a need to reinvent the business and had admired Gordon and McPhail for a long time because we shared a lot of distributors with them back in the 90s. And um, so it was Fred who brought the, the single cask business to Douglas Lane back then mm-hmm. and we didn't want to lose that at all um, we wanted to make it a bit slicker make it run a bit better so we put in place quite a lot of new ways of working um, a lot of it to do with dry materials making our packaging just work a bit harder for us yeah. not the glamorous side of it but um, <laughs> but, but a fact of re- life and reality for all us independent bottlers but also wanted to really grow and nurture Big Pete. So looked at just how can we improve his spirit profile, the the wood policy around Big Pete, and then um, quite quickly decided Big Pete needed a companion in the form of Scallywag. So it was it was in 2013 we also launched launched rather Scallywag as the the Speyside marriage of of single malts. So mm-hmm. I would say that was our biggest change, but. 
At the same time, we were changing distributors around the world and we were trying to regrow the team because we had, for loads of reasons, we had changed the Douglas Lane team in terms of personnel quite massively as well. Okay. Remarkable. Wow. We didn't sleep much. There were a lot of late <laughs> nights. So my, my questioning goes along sort of a, a slightly different path, Jason, but it is tied a bit to Big Pete. If you wanted to carry on this fine, if, if, if you're willing I'll, I'll to... I'll let you wander off and then, okay. yeah, if I need to Good. pivot back or, or reshape it. But yeah, I want to hear your question. So uh, there's a question that's been rattling around in my head for a while. And I, and I asked myself this question quite a lot. And I think you started to answer it a bit with, with Big Pete and, and with Scallywag. There are a lot of independent bottlers. Nowadays, there are a lot of independent bottlers. Uh, early on, there weren't many, right? Gordon McPhail, yep. yourselves, right? Cadden Heads, uh, Duncan Taylor, right? So on. There, there was this core of, of independent bottlers. And I always thought, from, from the perspective of appealing to the consumer, how has Douglas Lang pitched itself as a point of difference? Now, obviously your points of difference you you've got big peak you've got scallywag you've got all all of these things but from a from a s single cask standpoint or just you know the the slightly more traditional style of independent bottling how do you separate yourselves from the rest or how do you aim to do that yeah great question because it is it's a very cluttered space and i, I guess that's part of the reason why we've we've created the regional malts. Um, mm -hmm. In terms of looking at our, our sort of traditional single cask brands, so the likes of Old Particular or Extra Old Particular or Provenance, um, I guess one of our strengths, and I suppose what sets us apart, is um, my grandpa had the foresight um, and sense to establish these filling programs which mm -hmm. I touched on on the Whiskey Exchange show um, whereby we don't just rely on brokers I mean we, we do work with some brokers but most of our spirit has been um, has come straight off the still um, yeah. we have purchased it when it's still straight off the still and put it into our own wood and it's allowed us to access distilleries that a lot of the the newer independent bottlers mm. haven't been able to access um, but it is it's a really challenging marketplace and it requires consumers to have a lot of um, knowledge and understanding for, of whiskey because at a level consumers are like well why would I buy a Douglas Lane Talisker 10-year-old when I can just go to my supermarket and buy one right. in there? And I think for us, the the kind of biggest message we always like to hammer home, and it, it applies to most independent bottlers in truth, but is the fact that us, the independent bottlers, do bring consumers as close as most consumers can get to drinking a a whiskey straight out the cask in this amazing dark damp Scottish warehouse um, but I think I think specifically in terms of what would set Douglas Lane apart um, it's probably the the distilleries or the distillery malt that we can access um, and the the introduction of these regional 
uh, vatted or blended malts, which a lot of people were like, why on earth are you putting great Kalila or Blairathal or whatever it may be into these yeah. malts? And um, I guess it's because we recognise there are so many um, independent bottlers out there doing a great job of of releasing wonderful single casks from across Scotland. Mm -hmm. But where we can kind of put our own stamp on it is um, going back to the, the art of blending, um, which was something my grandpa basically established the company with. Fred's got a real love for it. And um, slowly I'm trying to, to learn in a very non-scientific technical way, but slowly trying to learn how to get that that great blend and balance. So I think that probably is increasingly what sets us apart. Mm -hmm. And, and when, when you go around discussing your brand, working with the public or, or distributors, shops, bars, etc., do you find or do you feel that it, it's a never-ending uphill battle with, with a certain segment of people and probably a larger segment of people compared to our customers of, oh, you don't know what an independent bottler is. All right, let's go over it. And so that's question one. And in question two, do you, do you see potentially brands like Big P as a foot in the door for those people who might be interested in dipping their toe into something that isn't a bottle of Macallan or a bottle of Beaumore or a bottle of, you know, name the brand here? I think yes to the independent bottler piece. I think within that, my biggest gripe is when you get the assumption that uh, the independent bottlers get the dregs that distillers mm. don't want. Yeah. Um, because mm -hmm. it's it's fundamentally not the case. And in truth, the big boys don't have the interest or capacity to go around each of their casks and go, that's a good one, that's a bad one, so give that to Douglas Lane. That's yeah. rubbish, so give that to whoever. Um, <laughs> it doesn't work that way, and, and we know it doesn't work that way because um, of the way we do our fillings. It's, you know, mm -hmm. it, it's... In truth, it's generally more about the wood policy anyway, in, in my opinion. But to me, that's a, a bit of a challenge. It's a, an incorrect myth within the independent bottler community that we just get the, the leftovers that no one else wants. And I think, yes, it's just yet another another thing to explain to consumers that you're not a distiller and this is what an independent bottler does and don't be alarmed by it and then you've got to explain why it's your brand but also someone else's brand featured on the label and it's just the, and and the other aspect is and again it's it, there's huge positives around it but independent bottler mm. labels have to carry so much information and people have don't to, have yeah. much time and they you get put off when you've got to read screeds of stuff so <laughs> it is it's i think there's enough of a passionate whiskey enthusiast community, though, that thankfully understand what independent bottlers do and what wonderful whiskies we release. And and I think consumers more and more, whether they're whiskey enthusiasts or not, they appreciate things not being tampered with and not having things added or removed. Yeah. And again, I think mm -hmm. I think that's what we're all great at. That. I mean, very much our philosophy is as natural as it gets. You know, don't add caramel colouring, don't chill filter, because you just remove all the 
all the meat and guts and good stuff. Um, keep it at high strength because actually, if you don't like it at high strength, you can add a bit of water and make the whiskey go a bit longer. But you'll probably quite exactly. like that big chunky. 56% bad boy. <laughs> um, but yeah, in terms of, of big peat, um, I mean, again, we've got an upward um, hill challenge or an uphill challenge rather with big peat because, um, and all the regional malts because they, they have to carry the word blended malt scotch whiskey. Yeah. And the number of consumers who see blend and they think it's poison um mm -hmm. and it's hugely frustrating because in truth big peat and rock island and timorous beastie and scallywag are far more difficult for us to create than the the, the independent bottling single cask <laughs> stuff there's far more art and skill um, sure. and work involved in them um but the fact it's got the dreaded word blend um is makes it always a bit of a challenge but I think when people get their head around it, they appreciate it's it's only a marriage of single malts and yeah. actually there is art involved. Well, hope, hopefully, uh, at least in the U.S. with our with these terrible 25% tariffs that, are, that have been put on to single malt, hopefully that's helped some of your blends a bit from a pricing standpoint. I think it has. Um, I mean, it's a shame the rest of the world's in turmoil as well. So you, um, the upside a year ago that we would have seen with that, I think we aren't feeling as much because of COVID and elections and everything else. But yeah, exactly. um, the US whiskey audience, again, they, they know their stuff. I mean, at a level, it's like every market, but for consumers that really understand the category and um, or have a level of understanding of the category. I think I think they they can appreciate a blend, whether it be a blended Scotch or a blended malt. Yeah, I, I want to return to something that you've been you know using a few times in, in maybe the last ten minutes or so is wood management and wood policy. I'm glad you went and back. and so what what does that look for you? Uh, within the company. Well, again, I guess um, going back to the strategy piece, it's probably what Chris and I um, most borrowed from our time. He was also at Beam Centauri, and um, there it was instilled in us that you about seventy percent of the end character of whiskey comes from the wood, um, and we very much brought that with us to Douglas Lane. So we're very focused on investing in really good casks. And again, because um, so much of our spirit comes from filling programs, we get the opportunity to supply our own casks. So um, we get the chance to go, actually, you know, that malt would be phenomenal in a virgin oak cask or that one would be phenomenal in an ex Ardbeg cask or whatever it may be so um, both in terms of renewing empty casks and getting them back in the system and, and bringing in fresh casks um, we, it's still work in progress we're, we're nowhere near done with it but we we, we focus very heavily on our, our wood and our casks and place huge emphasis on on having good wood because um, it makes such a huge difference and it's also quite fun to experiment with we've we've been doing a bit of that over the last year and a half with um, some interesting wood finishes and 
particularly on our Epicurean, which is our lowland um, malt, um, which is archetypal lowland and very light and fresh and barley rich and sweet. And it just lends itself really well to interesting cask finishes, which actually is what is in my now empty glass. Um, so we've had a, a couple of them um, finishing. Um, in fact, we've had a lot of, of, uh, of Epicurean spirit finishing in different types of casks over about the last year and a half and we're now beginning to see the the effects really come through so we had three releases this year and we've got another three planned for 2021 nice that's fantastic very nice yeah when you when you talk about wood there and and obviously from joshua's earlier question where you know we are seeing so many independent bottlers appear and and part of your answer there being well when you see the broker lists or you see the parcels being released it's very easy for a whole bunch of independent bottlers to release essentially the same whiskey. Getting into wood, getting into a cask program can really allow the, the independence to shine through in an independent bottler. Uh, and when we interviewed Ali Walker, when he created infrequent flyers, he was talking about the most exciting part he was wanting to get to was putting the wood, uh, I'm sorry, putting the whiskey that everybody's seeing into wood that not everybody is seeing. Yeah. And it's it's that kind of the zigging and the zagging. It's finding your own piece. And, and you know, I you know, clearly I, I look across the fence at you, you know, with with a company bit dating back to the 1940s and thinking, you know, how how wonderful and you know such such opportunity and you know, amazing contents in warehouse. And then hearing you say, well, actually 2013, 2014, it was like we were starting for the mm-hmm. first time. So I feel like you're very attuned to to the issues that Joshua and I deal with as an almost 10-year-old independent bottler. We've been seeing the same things with the same eyes. Um, and that makes me feel quite good today. Yeah, well, I, I, it's like therapy. <laughs> it's quite nice to hear <laughs> whether you've been around a long time or not that long a time, or you're a big team or a small team. I think um, uh-huh. we all have similar problems. Um, but it's, I think, if again, if you've got a love of whiskey, it, it helps, um, particularly mm. when you can sit with lots of samples on your desk. It's amazing how that gets you through a tough morning. <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> um. You had you'd mentioned before you you've got a, a series of different filling contracts so so you're able to get some malts that maybe other people don't get put it into wood that you know, maybe others aren't putting it into uh, or there's a certain quality of wood that that you demand that you need you need for the spirit I wasn't in that in that meeting uh, at the at the whiskey show but Jason's Jason came off of that meeting with, with you and, and the others and said. I just witnessed the most brilliant conversation, you know, b- between these great bottlers. And, and you want to know what one of the coolest takeaways was? I said, well, what's that? He said that Douglas Lang is in part working on a handshake deal with... <laughs> and if we need to get that, if we need to edit that out, please let me know. But if you want to talk about that, I just... I love... I think that speaks volumes about the industry, right? That a handshake decades ago still means something. 
Could yeah. you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, of course. Um, I, I mean, and the, the one, um, maybe, maybe slightly edit out. Um, I'd had quite a few <laughs> okay. whiskeys that afternoon, but, but um, no, very much. I'll put the, a beep. I'll put a beep over it. There you go. I mean, it, is, it is true. It's just um, the company in question that you can imagine are quite sticklers. Oh, but, of course, um, of course. Yep. <laughs> no, very, very much. Um, and I find it bizarre, but it is the wonderful thing about the, the whiskey industry. A number, um, and, and not dozens, but certainly a handful of the distillers who my grandpa had deals with that literally were a handshake and no written contract still stand with us today. Um, and it is what's allowed us to, to be able to get our hands on um, filling programmes. And, and these distillers that were independent back in the... 40s, 50s um, are now mm. part of some of the biggest companies in the world, but um, they they honour that deal that was put in place, luckily and thankfully, um, and we're very appreciative of it. And we don't take it for granted, and it's why we're we're firm members of the Scotch Whiskey Association and do sure. everything by the book. Because I think again, going back to your earlier question about what what sets us apart whilst most of us play by the rules we also we recognize very much at Douglas Lane that you know you've got to be appreciative for the fact you're being able to to access this wonderful spirit so don't abuse it and don't do daft labels or state things that are just going to annoy the bigger companies that that make sure you get your your spirit at the end of the day there's a a way of playing it fair and correctly mm-hmm. Uh, to me, it's it's one of the guiding words across the industry, which as independent bottlers, the only thing you really have is your reputation mm-hmm. and that level of trust that you have with with everybody here. And Josh and I always say, you know, it it, it takes us or it took us ten years to to build up that reputation, and we worked on that reputation, but with our you know the distilleries that we work with directly that trust and we will go to our distillery partners and say we're thinking about releasing your whiskey in this way what do you think of that nice you know and and, and really making it a very active two-way street where it's not just, oh, great, they sold us some liquid today and now we're running out the door to treat it however we want. And and I, I like, in listening to you today as well, you're saying the, this exact same thing, right? Yeah. I guess uh, the other side is now we are getting a, a flavour of being the, the other side of the fence because we now, about in fact, exactly a year ago, we took ownership of Strathairn tiny distillery in Perth. And I wanted to come round to this, so yes, please ah, run with okay, this. Okay, well, um, <laughs> so last October, uh, Douglas Lane brought Strathairn Distillery in Perth um, into the, the family and into the mix, um, which saw us become distillers for the first time, which which was lovely. Um, much like buying a house, however, you suddenly discover you've got about a month of just 
absolute excitement and intrigue and it's all great and then you start uncovering all the things that you didn't expect and a year later <laughs> that still happens but um, it's come on leaps and bounds and we're installing some new equipment to allow us to really increase the, the capacity and um, doing lots of lovely things up there but it, it's given us a flavour of um, being the other side and we we have single casks available from Strathairn so suddenly you're getting people coming to you saying I'd like to bottle my cask of Strathairn and is it okay if I put this in the label and can you approve this label and again you really appreciate that because they're not off doing their own thing they're they're mm -hmm. checking in with you. They're um, they're asking for input and advice, and um, it's just quite funny. Again, being on the the receiving end um, of of how it normally has worked for us. So the the tables have turned, um, and we're we're in the midst of also building a distillery in Glasgow. So um, we we're properly trying to get in amongst the distilling game as well. But I have to say, I I, I still feel real love for the the independent bottler side of Douglas Lane and it'll always be a key part of the business it's not something we want to forget about so that's what surprised me this morning when when somebody mentioned Strathairn to me and the Douglas Lane connection and I thought of your distillery being the one in Glasgow and so did you and forgive my ignorance here did you build Strathairn from the ground up, are you a controlling partner? Is it a role within that distillery? No, we um, so we didn't build it. Um, strangely enough, back in 2013, we went to speak to the owners um, about supporting them, working with them, maybe buying it. But again, we were just in in a position of having to get our our own house in order at Douglas Lane, so it went nowhere. And then, um, if you believe in fate, it came back around and um, through last year, from about summer of last year, we, we were in talks with them. Um, the owner of Strathairn wanted, wanted out and um, we've always thought it was a really quaint boutique distillery in the Highlands. Um, really like the spirit. It's it's very much in line with our ethos. We we inherited all of the first batch of Strathairn single malt when we um, acquired the distillery. So we mm. we got the casks that are slumbering, but we also got um, quite a, a good volume of cased bottles. And I was a bit nervous because I was like, you know, it's stock we're inheriting. How do we know it? You know, it might not be good. It might not be. You know, could be chill filtered and coloured to hell and back. But sure. um, it's totally in line with with our ethos. It's um, it's high strength. It's non chill filtered. There's no colouring. It's young, and you know, the distillery was is not old. So it's it's. Um, generally about five-year-old stock that is in the first release of Strathairn but it's I'm yet to see a bad review about it in terms of spirit quality and, and Douglas Lane can take no credit for it it's been sure it's been um, again a good distiller and, and good casks but it's surprisingly mature and complex and got lots of depth and character for something so young and again it, it kind of goes back to good wood means good whiskey um generally i mean i i'm sure a lot of people would 
dispute that. But um, so it was an exciting addition, and I still I love getting up there and um, actually to to roll your sleeves up and get involved and do a bit of a shift in the distillery. I was left on, on my last time I was up, I was left on my own. Um, only for about half an hour, but the distiller was like, "I need to run out. See as you're here, can you can you be in charge?" And I was like, "I don't, I don't actually know that I can." Um, so I'm trying to think. I think I think the date was the 13th of September. So it's a, a batch of Strathairn to to watch out for and, and definitely never buy. Um, but uh, it's lovely, and it is. It's it's a a small distillery but um we're we're increasing the capacity quite significantly and um again we're we're very focused on getting good casks and and having a good plan in place and once the world returns to a degree of normality we're we're excited to be able to open the doors and and have friends of Douglas Lane and Strathairn visit the distillery again are they the ones just outside of Perth? Yes, they are. With, yeah. a, with an alambic still? Yes. yes. Okay. I, I, I visited them in May of 2014. Okay. Um, to have you know conversations about working together and okay. it, it, it didn't really go anywhere. But we tasted, they had some unique wood that they were maturing in. And quite small casks. Was yeah, there, very, yes. Yeah, so... The, the belief and clearly it worked because the the impact of the wood is is significant but their their belief was the small casks really imparted far more depth and color and had more of an impact um so it's it's ongoing work in progress but it's it's moving in the right direction and um it's a, a fun place to visit and, and work a shift in as well. <laughs> so so if so Strathairn is is the, the Douglas Lang, you know, in existence. Do you wanna can you talk a little bit about the, the Glasgow plans there? Yes. Um so we we definitely prematurely unveiled our plans for Glasgow, um slightly because we had to. We um we knew it was getting into the public domain um we would have quite liked to have quietly gone about our business and build the thing and start distilling and then mm -hmm. gradually be like here's some product but that didn't happen um and it's certainly been a, a learning curve um the theme of time passing quickly um this project's been on the go for five years which um in many ways is embarrassing but is also quite a, a good example of the whiskey industry slow but the building industry is even slower mm -hmm. um so it has been a painful process but we are now um it's now massively heating up um, and it's it's actually far more than just a distillery. So we are moving to a, an all-encompassing site in Glasgow um, that will have our head office, um, our own bottling and warehousing facility, but also will be home to the Clutha Distillery. Um, so everything on one site and... In my mind, it will make a huge difference. It's, um, again, back to the, the production issues that we all have. Um, to be able to be sitting in your office and then suddenly discover there's a problem on the bottling line, shove on your high-vis jacket and be down on the line, seeing that what the problem is and trying to work out a solution. I'm so excited about that. And I'm so excited about actually being able to, again, 
walk out your head office and walk into a distillery. Um, apart from anything, it's that wonderful smell I love <laughs> in a distillery. So, um, so it's exciting, and um, we're we're on track to be in through um, early to middle of next year. Um, okay. Finally, we had in truth we had hoped to be in in twenty eighteen, which. Um, was a big anniversary year for us, mm-hmm. but um, it yeah, <laughs> two and a bit years later, we'll we'll um, we'll call it not too bad a result. Uh, whereabouts in Glasgow is it being set up? Um, that is the one bit we're not divulging. Oh, okay. um, so it's just it's it's just outside Glasgow. I mean, it's still very central, but it's just on the. It's not bang in city centre, Glasgow, sure. but not not far from it. Well, just in, in terms of that that project that you're describing, they are thinking about getting land in Glasgow city centre would be difficult yeah. and expensive. But then yeah. also thinking about the distilleries that have come and gone in Glasgow or yeah. you know, the bottling plants that have come and gone and, and thinking about how you can just be a little outside of the city centre and still be Glasgow proper, but have a yeah. large parcel of land on which to, to put all this together. Well, this is the thing. We recognise it's not going to be the pretty countryside scenic mm-hmm. distillery that um, Strathairn is for us. But we also, as you were saying, I mean, at one point, Glasgow had 21 distilleries. Um, it had such an amazing distilling past. And we're very much a proud Glasgow company. We're, we're a Glasgow family. Um, and it just... We wanted it to be our first distillery, which in a way it will be because we didn't build Strathairn, but mm-hmm. um, it just it felt like a, a, an absolute no-brainer to do it that way. So it's exciting that it's progressing and um, one way we all can't wait to be in. And whilst it will be a lowlander and an urban distillery, we're, we're very clear on the spirit style being far more like a, a really robust, big chewy highland malt so um kind of not what you'd expect is the theme it won't be ockintosh and glenkinshi grassy <laughs> light nutty it will be really quite quite different so things are moving and the the stills are being produced just now and um in fact the the meeting I was on before I joined you guys, we were talking about casks and cask storage and all that good stuff. So um, it's it's exciting to see it moving. Are you able to, to reveal or, or do you already have it in your plans about how many casks you envision having on site? I should know the exact number. Thousands. Yeah. Um, our plan is to have basically all our cask inventory um space for other people's casks if you're interested always <laughs> um, but we again we recognize cask storage is is there's a shortage so we and we we want to have a far tighter control over our casks i i shared the the horrific story um which i can now laugh at to an extent um but i mean i, I think it was december 2014 or 15 um where a forklift uh, drove into one of our Port Helen casks and and it's soul destroying and it's horrific and it was a real like drop everything you're doing get into the boardroom we need a meeting moment so uh, and I'm not saying that won't happen under yeah, our right. watch but um, <laughs> at least we'll only have ourselves to blame whereas it was just 
the the lack of control sometimes in the whiskey industry is tough because you're you're often at arm's length from things that you shouldn't be at arm's length from. The casks are so important that you you want to be able to see them and touch them and know that they're being looked after. And so just to fill that out for the the listeners there, so you had a cask of Port Ellen that had been pulled for a bottling run that was at a bottling hall that a forklift ran through and you yep. lost the entirety yep. of the cask? You weren't. Yep. You didn't jump it, in your car we, and start picking out shards? They, no, so we didn't even hear about it till about two weeks after. Oh. Um, so it had been, I think, just left to um, flow away. Um, so yes, I mean, moments like that are... They're the days where you need a sample at your desk to wow. have a quick... Oh, my goodness. And did you receive that call? Did that go to Fred? Did it go to somebody no, else in the chain? No, I think, I think it went to our production team. <laughs> it worked its uh, way along. <laughs> you tell them. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I think it may have taken a few days for it to reach us. Um, but these things happen. Yeah, and yeah. And that's, that's the thing. There's not much you can do, but it happens. And... Uh, now I can see it with a smile on my face. I couldn't back then, um, <laughs> but you've got to just suck it up and move on. And thankfully, the, the, you've got cask insurance and warehouse insurance, right. and you you know that helps a little. But you also know the value of these casks. And and in fact, never mind that. You know that particularly with the likes of Port Ellen, it, it can't particularly a Port Ellen 35, 40 year old, it can't be repeated again. Um, well, well, and I think, you know, the, the part that, you know, I'm sure some savvy consumers think about, but you're also trying to tell a story with your releases as an independent bottler. And that would have had a part in a narrative that yeah. went even beyond. And the liquid is serious enough and the age is serious enough, but the position within a line or a release is yeah. vital as well. And to lose that part of the story can can be difficult as well not as difficult as losing the physical gas no it was a bad day it was a bad uh, day a very bad day uh, there was two weeks coming um <laughs> i want to i want to quickly talk about an unsexy part of the business and then we've got one question that we ask of everybody to end the interview okay um you joshua and myself before we hit our various record buttons we're talking about the logistics side of the industry. And, and you know, you get into the whiskey business and you think it's whiskey to the forefront and it's whiskey every day, and it really isn't. And so for you at, at Douglas Lang, what are you facing on that dry goods side of things? You know, when you come into the office, what are some of the things you're taking care of, boxes that you're checking? Loads, and I, again, <laughs> right. I think I think that's the the thing about um, smaller businesses, family businesses, independent bottlers. You wear many hats. Um, it's something I always say to people in interviews in here that um, either you'll either love it or loathe it because um, if you're someone that loves to roll their sleeves up and get involved and do lots of things and see the entire process, you'll love life at Douglas Lane. But if you're used to a big company where you just look after labels or you just look after casks, then this probably isn't the place for you. Um, and by that, I mean um, it, we we have to get involved in everything. And um, the dry 
goods and packaging aspect is something I get very involved in um, because it's so important. Can, I believe consumers buy with their eye first. Mm-hmm. Um, even the greatest whiskey enthusiasts, they care about how it looks, whether it's the packaging or the spirit colour, they, they form an opinion pretty quickly. So um, we have all sorts of challenges from labels peeling off tubes to corks breaking Uh to suppliers, particularly at the moment because of COVID lengthening supply lines and um, lead times just generally doubling. Um, It's amazing every day you're like, what are you going to be hit with? Because generally every day for about the last month to two months, there has been something, a a printer for labels has had a COVID outbreak or a bottling partner has had a COVID outbreak or um, shipping cases haven't been delivered in on time or um, quite a regular one for us is um, labels going down the bottling line and suddenly they discover a back label is bigger than it should be and it stops the line. Oh, no. Just things like that. Yeah. And actually, the other the other thing just now we're, we're really finding um, difficult, and it makes lots of sense, but all these warehouses in Scotland are so old, um, they don't really allow for social distancing. Mm. So trying to get casks moved out, I don't know if you guys have found this, but we're mm. just finding um, in a lot of the older warehouses, they're struggling to access casks because it's got to be done by hand and they can't really send two guys in to, to manually handle it because they've got to be close together. So it's just, I yeah, you sometimes feel you're like you're in customer service because you're just dealing with a lot of problems at times. <laughs> but, but then you see, which sounds terribly negative, because then you see the end result and we love um, like you guys have obviously just had when you have that moment where a product comes together and it might have been an absolute pain to get it there but you see the finished thing and it's got the wax dipping and the labels are perfectly applied and the box looks great you release it and consumers love it and it wins awards and you see it on social media you're like oh we all did that and yes. it all came together beautifully but the journey to that point can be can be painful at times. A hundred percent. And sometimes I try to remember to look through the eyes, the same eyes that got me and Joshua into the business, which is when that product is ready and we post it on social media or we make it available for sale, I try to look at what the consumers, the members of the nation, this community that's grown around us, I try to remember to look at it through their eyes and not through the, that never got picked up and that, you know, label got approved three different times for three different reasons. And that was a headache. There's a typo on it. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Yeah. We, we just had it and, and I'll, you know, Joshua will decide whether to take this out in post or not. But but that Balconies that we just released today, that it's actually now sold out uh, in that hour. But on the label of it, once Joshua and I got the finished product and we held it, the distillery name is in grey and we never, ever, ever, ever put the distillery name in grey. And somewhere between the label being approved and the label being printed we signed off on the grey distillery name and never once noticed it until it was in our hand on the bottle. 
ready for sale. Well, I'm not judging. <laughs> We've had sugar spelt wrong. We had a distiller. We had a provenance Glen Dacum instead of <laughs> Glen Cadden. <laughs> So, so in getting out of here, um, it's it's a two-parter and, and we can go as, as depth as you want. It, it doesn't need to be a, a two-second answer. And when you hear the question, you might gather that. Um, we've talked about it through, through our conversation, independent bottling, the independent bottling business. First of all, what do you see as the future for independent bottlers? And, and then secondarily, what are you, and we, again, we touched on this as well, what are you most excited about as an independent bottler going forward? Interesting. Um, I think I think this next six months to a year will be really interesting for all of us in the the independent bottling category because um, it's always been this history of um, whiskey lakes and or whiskey lochs mm-hmm. and. Um, whiskey droughts and and it is the big boys that determine that um, I don't know I, I don't get the impression right now that the, the state of the world is having a massive impact on the big boys I think spirits are still doing quite well mm-hmm. through this mm-hmm. that said it feels like we might be coming into a bit of a a whiskey law scenario again and it's at that point it gets a bit more interesting for all us independent bottlers because suddenly there is there's more interesting varied stock kicking about mm-hmm. I don't know it's a difficult one to to know what way it will go because whiskey's just been on this wonderful growth platform and it's it I just I'd love to see it continue because it's good for all of us I just sense at some point that will start to level off and it might mean um, some of us can pick up some more interesting stock. And you're right, it's it. you can tell when there's been a parcel of broker stock kicking yeah. about because it, suddenly there's a lot of very similar <laughs> bottlings of a similar age uh-huh. and style. So it would be nice to see a bit more variety and some of the distillers loosen their stance on filling programmes a bit. Which actually, can I interject with a question? Because I'm mm-hmm. curious your take on it, given that you are third generation. For me, one of the one of the things that I love the most, and one of the things I talk about all the time over here in the US about independent uh, bottlers, is that we have had our brand top, and then that distillery name. I'm seeing a rise of no name parcels coming out, and. And we as a company don't really want to bottle that. And we have been working to find uses for that. What's your position on this rise of unnamed liquid? And do you think it flies in the face of what your grandfather set up and your father continued and you're continuing? We we are used to it. I mean, I think even back in... Um my grandpa's day, a number of the distillers said, we'll access your filling programmes, but you can't say it's from X distillery. Mm -hmm. So we've been used to it. I guess it's part of what also drove us to establish the regional malts. Um, 
so we've yeah we've got filling programs where we can't say what they are and it's annoying because some of them are cracking distilleries that you would love to be able to see in a way it adds to the mystique like i love i don't know the coca-cola recipe and i have no idea where i'd even begin and i think i think sometimes i'm all for transparency but i sometimes think the whiskey industry is asked to divulge too much interesting that leaves very little room for mystique so I'm not totally against it. And then I also think it's helped by groups like Malt Maniacs, where you can maybe plant a seed <laughs> that actually, yeah, that might be hard big. Um, <laughs> and then you let them chat about it. I think it also generates conversation. Mm. Equally, I, I can understand why people get frustrated by it because they want to know what they're drinking and, and arguably that's, they're perfectly entitled to know what they're drinking. Yeah. Um, I see both sides. It sounds like a politician's answer, but I can I can see why distillers want to be protective of their spirit completely. But I also think it does add a bit of magic and mystery, which sometimes in life is nice and we all need it. Well, and I think I think for me, I I could be okay with it for one reason and I'm not okay with it for the other reason. I could be okay with it if they would say, look, we're we're running the stills, we're releasing spirit. You know, you're a customer and you're receiving spirit. And and if, if that was the case, I'm okay with that. It's this rise of distilleries, physical factories becoming brands and brands being protected. That That's a little bit that rubs mm -hmm. me the wrong way. Has Ardbeg earned the right to be its own brand? Sure. Has Bowmore earned that right? Sure. Has McAllen? Sure. You know, could we go on down the line? But then we're offered stock from distilleries that if we put the name across our label in neon pink, nobody would know what we were talking about. Yeah. And they're being protected. And I'm like... Mm -hmm. that's not going yeah. to work that's frustrating to me I want to introduce our nation members, our consumers to these wonderful distilleries and I feel like I'm not getting a chance to do that and that's frustrating yeah, no I would agree with that I, I would totally agree yeah. with that yes. another aspect of what you were just saying a moment ago is it's so interesting that the way you were talking about you know, forward looking plans for 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 Douglas Lang are really contingent on other companies' plans. And I think that sometimes we miss that in independent bottling circles as well, where we're doing everything we can to protect ourselves against the decisions that we're not privy to. But in terms of that rise of the whiskey loch again, we're not privy to those conversations. We don't no. get to be responsible for those decisions. But they are going to impact us either for good or for bad. And I think it is part of the reason of what's driven us to to take on Strathairn and to be building Clutha because it is we use the line a lot. We want to be masters of our own destiny, 100%. and it is. Sometimes you get a bit twitchy and itchy, um, being at the mercy of others. Um, that said, I think sensible distillers will always see the the positives that um, independent bottlers bring, both from a, a 
a commercial perspective, but a credibility and PR aspect. We we do bring a lot of good stuff to them as well. Absolutely, absolutely. We we had been relying on anecdotal evidence, but but we ran some marketing and found out that seventy percent of our members who learn about a distillery through single cast nation will go and buy the distiller's bottle in a shop. Like, like, like how key is that? Yeah. And there's that trust and there's that responsibility. Yep. Yep. It's, it's so important. So uh, obviously I could keep talking to you. You need to go home. You've got children. What are you most excited I... about going forward? It's terrible to say this. I'm very excited about our bottling facility. Right. Um, <laughs> mainly because the, the line went in today. I mean, it's not up and running, but the line arrived. So I think because it's uh, hot off the press and I've just seen it for the first time and because of the number of problems we have um, having our bottlings done by others, that's exciting. And I'm, um, But it's not so romantic. Uh-huh. So I, I should give you a romantic one. Um, I love the honesty. No, we're here for the honesty. <laughs> well, <laughs> I um, I'm excited for next year. I'm hoping um, across the board, 2021 is a better year. I think this is this year sucked. Um, there's not been many positives in 2020. It's been a tough one for everyone, um, and I am optimistic for 2021. And and from a Douglas Lane whiskey perspective. Um, I think 2021 will see us really get our act together with Strathairn and, and ramp up production there and and hopefully be able to open the door to some visitors. <laughs> um, we will get um, Clutha up and running and um, I've just seen the, the selection of, of single casks that we'll be releasing through quarter one of next year and it's it's nice and it's varied and there's some interesting ones. We've got exciting plans for the regional malts next year as well. So I am buoyed by the <laughs> fact that um, 2021 can only only be a better year and certainly it's a, a big year for, for us here and, and across the board to get things right and get things moving and um, have some some good positive outcomes. Um, I'd love to get back out to the States. I've not been in the US since since about 2014. Okay. Um, and we've got great partners um, out there who we've only ever met over Zoom and Teams calls. So um, I'd love to get out to the, the States again next year. That's, that would be nice. But right now I can't get down to London, let alone right. America. So <laughs> I'm not holding my breath. You can't get from one side of Glasgow to the other. No, no. <laughs> God forbid you should try and go to a bar right. in Glasgow at the moment. We're we're in a state of prohibition. So. Oh gosh, it's yeah, it's it's obviously a, a tough, tough time. But your plans for the future sound absolutely fantastic. It is next next year's a big one for us. We've got um, it will be tough. I mean, it's not going to be an easy gig at all, um, and there are always challenges. But it it should be an exciting one. Well. Thank you so much for your time today. I really Thank appreciate Thank you for having it. me. Such a pleasure. Such a pleasure. Spending time with Cara. And, and as we said there, to the future. We, we raise a glass to the future where we will actually get to sit in person and 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 meet Chris, who mm-hmm. got mentioned plenty of times mm-hmm. uh, in that interview. Perhaps meet Fred, uh, who I've I've seen 
uh, I've never met, never been introduced to. Same. And so, yeah. yeah, it'll be good. It'll be good to get over, see the see the distillery, see the bottling hall, have a chance to 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 taste some casks, maybe just just chat, just have a a jolly good time in Glasgow. You know, Yoni Miller, our in-house cigar czar, I think it was Yoni, had told me that uh, Douglas Lang, either last year or maybe the year before, did something very cool. So you know how uh, they have Big Pete, which gets mentioned in, in the podcast mm-hmm. a few times or in the interview a few times. And every year they do a Big Pete Christmas edition, which is usually mm-hmm. cask strength and, and all that. Uh, but they did a Big Pete Purim edition, mm. which is very cool. So for those of you that don't know, Purim is a, is a Jewish holiday that usually involves a fair amount of drinking. It is, a, it is very much a drinking holiday. And I just love that uh, Douglas Lane came out with something that was, that was for us. That's yeah. a very nice thing. Yeah. So there you go. That was that was wonderful. So thank you to to the, even the team at, at the whiskey show with the whiskey exchange. Mm-hmm. Without mm-hmm. them, I wouldn't have been prodded to reach out to Cara. We would have just continued to be ships that passed in the night. Indeed. And so that was that was very that was very good. Yep. Lovely. Yeah. Yeah. So what's next for us, Joshua? Well, Where are we. <laughs> Huh. Where we, are we taking this? We have got a few things going. We have news that we need to report. We have some listener emails and, and messages that, that we definitely want to talk about. And so let's do it in that order. Let's go for the news. and then Oh, and we have some new feedback on our Apple iTunes thing. Someone posted a comment there, so I want, I want to read that as well. Wonderful. Let's, let's do it. Let's wake news. up the paper boy. Wake him up. First bit of news from me right. is our second retail release for UK, Europe, rest of the world mm-hmm. is moving on a pace. It is in bottles. It does have labels. And because 2020 is, is not ready to be done being a nuisance just yet, we've got a little bit of a new COVID slowdown. In Scotland, at our bottling hall, with the labelling. And so everything is in place. We just need the team to be able to come together mm-hmm. to get those labels attached. But we are, we're very excited. We have posted the, the, the blog update, which is mm-hmm. something we've traditionally done for the US retail releases. But now we're starting to do that for the UK, Europe, rest of the world releases as well. So people who are interested in the nation can go along. Um, I've got it up on singlecastnation.com. If you click the blog down on the left side, uh, you'll be able to find it. You were also putting it on singlecastnation.co.uk? Correct. Right. So that's a newer website for us that we're still building. But for those of you who are living outside of the U.S., we're, we're trying to put more content up on singlecastnation.co.uk, and, and we'll, we'll get that blog post up there as well, uh, which includes tasting notes and cask details and, and all that stuff. 
Well, and the other thing we have been saying to people is no matter where you are in the world, if you have interest in Single Cast Nation, please become a member at singlecastnation.com. You will receive the state of the Single Cask Nation mm -hmm. email every month where we're trying to put everything we're up to globally in one spot and delivered to your inbox. Yes. Now, you will also see news about the US releases, but you will absolutely receive the state of the Single Cast Nation email, and that is important. Mm -hmm. Correct. So just so to clarify here, on the, on the releases here that we have, UK, Europe, rest of the world, we have the Clinlish nine-year-old, mm -hmm. which was second fill bourbon hogshead. We have Aberfeldy 28-year-old, refill bourbon hogshead. Glenelgin 10-year-old, second fill bourbon hogshead, which is, you and I tasted it, completely out of left field. That's a very, very different Glenelgin. Because it tastes as if that previous hogs had, had held something peaty before. There's something smoky going on in there, and it's lovely. You don't see a smoky Glen Elgin very often. No, you don't. Then we also have Imperial 24-year-old, second fill, bourbon barrel. An old grain, Invergarden 45-year-old, in a first fill bourbon barrel. That's Exciting. an act of cask on an old grain and then we are releasing 300 bottles of our undisclosed Kentucky straight bourbon 24 year old that will be 300 bottles available for UK Europe rest of the world correct that's a big deal this is our first ever global release that's true Right, yeah, bottled in 70 CL or 700 ml for countries outside of the U.S. And then in 750 ml for us, for South Africa, because some of this will go to South Africa, which we're very excited about. And we're hoping to get a little bit of it into Alberta, up into Canada as well. So, so yeah, that is our first global release. That's amazing. Absolutely amazing. It is. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah this this pre-fire Kentucky bourbon that has got people quite excited. Mm -hmm. With that said, Joshua, I will throw the floor over to you for the second news item. Well, my news bit isn't too far off from what we just mentioned. While we're releasing 300 bottles of our 24-year-old Kentucky bourbon, pre-fire, as, as we've been saying... For the rest of the world, we have 1,200 bottles bottled for the U.S. And that is going to go on sale online on our website on November 10th at 12 noon. This will not be a lottery situation. We know that in the past we've said, if it's a bourbon, if it's a rye, we're going to put it up on lottery. But that was because... It was always single cask. This is not a single cask, obviously. We have 1,200 bottles worth, worth of the liquid. So we have much more liquid to go around. So what we'll do is we'll limit it to two per person. And the bottles will be $295 a piece. And, of course, as always, $10 flat rate shipping. So you can get two bottles and it'll still cost you just the 10 bucks to ship. 
And to be crystal clear, All right. the 1,200 bottles coming to the United States can only reside within the United States. This is why we've gone out and released these 300 bottles outside of the United States, mm -hmm. is we wanted fans of Single Cast Nation and bourbon fans mm -hmm. dotted around the world to have access to this. But the 1,200 that will be sold online November 10 at noon with a two max per person mm -hmm. will only will only remain within the United States, can only be shipped yeah. within the United States. We can say it is the identical liquid. Yes. So yep. don't exactly. feel like you have to go out and, and find a 70 CL if you have access to the 75. Don't think you have to go get access to the 75 CL if you only have access to the 70 CL. It's the same liquid. It's all from the same batch. Yeah. I think the nation is going to respond very positively to this uh, after, and I'm, and I'm throwing this in for a, for a key reason here. We released the Balcones double cask nation four-year-old mm -hmm. on October 28. Sure. Is that right? Yeah, sure. Checks out. Something like that. We released it and, uh, in a date in late October. And what was interesting, <laughs> it's as you alluded to earlier, Joshua, mm -hmm. with, with the UK clocks going back the week before, our calendars got out of sync for things we'd planned. Mm -hmm. And we interviewed Cara during the sale of the Balcones. That's right. Uh, and normally we blank out that time and we had it black, blanked out except for the clock change. And, and we like to keep an eye on emails and keep an eye on sales and keep an eye that everything's just running smoothly. And in the, during the interview... I received a, a text message from a, a good friend and a good supporter, Cameron Rifle, mm -hmm. in Idaho. Oh yeah, and he's and he said, "Did it really sell out?" And and I had no idea because I wasn't watching anything, which always makes me think, "Oh no, have we have we hit a road bump here? Do I have to check something here?" Uh -huh. And and I I very quickly looked over uh, at the website while. You were speaking to Kara. Kara was speaking to us. I had a quick look at the website, and we we really sold out 450 bottles of that Balcones in 49 minutes. Wow. It was tremendous support from the nation, absolutely tremendous, yep. and has yep. me so excited to release the 24-year-old pre-fire bourbon to them as well. Yep. I'm really excited to see what they do with this release. Uh, yeah. We will be crystal clear for the November 10 launch mm -hmm. that it's a pre-sale. Yes, thank and, you. Yep. And we have moved away from pre-sales because they, they get a little untidy. But, and I, I'm okay saying this out loud on the podcast, this is the biggest project you and I have ever undertaken. Period. Yep. Right? Yep. It's the number of bottles. It's the global nature of it. It's the price of those bottles. And as we said earlier this year, we are willing to take bigger chances with this company 
because we have the support of the nation behind us. Mm -hmm. And so we're doing the pre-sale on this so that we know the numbers. Mm -hmm. We know the sales. We know the income. I'm I'm being very transparent here. Mm -hmm. We know the full situation surrounding this project before we bring it into the country. This is hugely important. And having the nation have our backs on this mm-hmm. is hugely important, hugely so. And and so I don't want people to... Uh, we're, we're always cautious. We never want to present a bait and switch. So when we make this available November 10, for everybody who purchases, we're going to take those email addresses, we're going to dedicate their own folder to them, and we are going to give you at least weekly updates on the progress of this because it's not simply buy, wait a week, and we start shipping. We're also going to have to ship 1,200 bottles. That's a process. We'll be doing our best there as well. So there will be updates that come with this so you always know where you stand. But it is a pre-sale. And we're hoping that clear communication will benefit you and you purchasing will benefit us. Mm -hmm. And together, we will all benefit the nation. I think it's important to point out that communication is very much a two-way street, though. And so if we're putting information out, it needs to be read. (laughs) <laughs> right? What's that uh, TL semicolon DR too long didn't read? Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. not going to work here, right? You're, it's, it, it will just cause frustration. If, if everybody reads the information up front, they will know the state of everything in play, and then we will over-communicate like you had said, and it's just a matter of we will communicate but you need to digest that information. Yeah, yeah. And we will put out photos. We will put out videos. Those will go direct to the inboxes of purchasers. Mm -hmm. Uh, The purchasers will get the first look uh, at each step of this progress. We will, of course, keep our Facebook group involved. Our Facebook group is blowing up anyway with this release, Mm -hmm. uh, with the announcement of this release. And so... Yes, there will there will be lots of nice things to look at and, and keep everybody on the same page. And with with that said, do you have a, another news item? You have a cat with a lampshade on its head on your lap. Yeah, while you were while you were enjoying Shabbat and Lyle Lovett and Chris Isaac, I was I was taking my cat to the vet because he got bit by something, and now he has an upside down lampshade on his head because. Cats are cats. He looks happy with that pet right now, though. Yeah, some okay. nice pro-level petting going on there. <laughs> uh, I don't think I have any other news. Am I supposed to have other news? You might not have any more news to share. I'm going to make a, a little tease here, and then we're going to get out of the news segment. Okay. For those of you in the United States who are not hearing us talking about retail release number seven... The wheels are turning behind the scenes. Yes, they are. We do have selections. We do have bottling. We do have some labeling. It is a real thing that will happen in the future. 
and we will have more information. It'll be on the website, it'll be in the State of the Nation address, it'll be on the podcast, it'll be on the Facebook group. We will spread the news once it is ready to be spread. Yeah, unfortunately, 2020 sucks, COVID sucks, everything sucks, and it's making, it's just, everything's ruined, Jason. (laughs) (laughs) However, as any business person will tell you, it's these challenges that make us stronger, Joshua, and we will come out of this better for the experience. You buying that? (laughs) Go on. on. (laughs) Go on. Give it a buy. Come on. Push your chips in. Oh, gosh. Yeah, I'll lose everything on that. (laughs) (laughs) So let's get to some emails. You talked about COVID there. I know we've got a really tremendous COVID-related message. We received one of the nicest emails that we received in a good while. And that's saying something, right? Because think of the the lovely message that we got from Travis Williams recently, right? Think about Mm -hmm. some of the lovely messages that we've gotten. There's some people uh, down in Brazil who've sent us some messages and people in Sweden who have sent us emails. You know, people are connecting with our podcast and it means a lot. And and this email, I don't know. I, I just I, I I really enjoyed it and and I want to read it for everybody. And so this is from Dr. Matt Bishop. And the subject reads Greetings and thanks for all the good times. J J and J. And now it goes on with this with the content of the email. It says, Hi Jason, Joshua, and Jess. Rearrange <laughs> rearrange in preference as suits the reader. Now, Jason, you know my preference is that it's that it's Joshua, Jason, and Jess, but you may read it differently. But whatever makes you happiest, Joshua. Mm-hmm. So, Dr. Bishop says, "I'm writing to express the gratitudes, platitudes, attitudes, and altitudes." <laughs> <laughs> you know, he's a he's a solid listener here that I have for your presence on the airwaves during difficult times of the COVID pandemic. The comfort and security I have received during 2020 whilst listening to your shows are very much appreciated and are second to none in the vast arena of pad costs. As a key worker working on novel cancer therapies, I have commuted to Edinburgh throughout all variations of the national and regional lockdowns and have listened to what may have been days or weeks in total of your broadcasts. <laughs> Just think, all that, all that medical knowledge that he once had has been yeah. part, not entirely pushed out, but it's been squeezed by all of the nonsense we put into the podcast. So <laughs> my, my sincere apologies. Uh, for squeezing that medical knowledge. Every time I learn something new, it pushes some old stuff out of my brain. Well, I just say you're welcome, but that's me. <laughs> so, he, so he goes on. He says, I've watched the world pass by through my car windows, from deserted streets to bewildered people venturing out to finally masked masses trudging soulless on their way to secure the last pack of toilet roll. Inside my car, I'm wrapped in tall tales, whiskey stories, family anecdotes, distiller's dreams, and all tied up with strings of laughter and good friendships. 
your short, tight 30s and dialogues <laughs> uh, that seem to hold no boundary in time have kept the world in its place for me. I know wow. I'm, I know, right? It, I know I'm only one of many listeners, but it feels like you are talking just to me as I drive the long road. I laugh till I cry, and I cry till I laugh, and on the way there's no virus, no panic, no government ineptitude, nothing but fun stories of high spirits and whiskey spirits. Thank you for your time and energy in filling my world so wonderfully with your words and thoughts. I must apologize at this point, though, as I've yet to buy a single bottle of your single cask nation whiskey. If it's anywhere near as fantastic as your pad cost, I will <laughs> surely be in for a treat beyond compare. Maybe soon? Question <laughs> mark. And then finally, he says, with regards and the sincerest of best wishes from here in central Scotland. Thank you. Chin chin. Two chins. Matt. Two chins. Two chins. Oh, man. That's wonderful. That, that, Absolutely wonderful. That's, I, I, I get verklempt during, yes, yes. during messages like that. Yes. Uh, <coughs> yeah. He said that, clearing his throat. <laughs> 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 oh, dusty in here. <laughs> yeah. It's, I, I, I don't, I, I don't take compliments easy. Uh, but but I will say, you know, Dr. Bishop, Matt, I'm glad that we could help in any way, shape, or form. We can help your life be just a little bit easier, a little less, a little less sufferable. <laughs> yeah, um, a little less out of control. It's the fact that it that we keep the world in place. You know, mm. for, for that one moment like that one thing and and i think that's you know i was going to ask you this this week but we we definitely don't have time for it i'll just mention it very briefly in passing you've said a few times that the most fun you're having in the industry right now is this podcast yeah oh yeah and yep. the 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 recording of it the interviews the chatting the post production and and I think it speaks to the point that, that Dr. Matt was making there. It was Matt? Yeah, Matt. I, I just think of Dr. Matt and I think Lurin. I know, right? <laughs> like Dr. Matt Lurin. I suddenly thought I'd subbed in the wrong doctor. Um, and so as, as Dr. Matt is saying there, you know, it, it, we've always we've joked for years about you putting a pin in it. Mm. And I feel like in, in the larger life, this podcast has put a pin of placement of of belonging, of returning to, that I think that might be where you're drawing such enjoyment. That's that's um, it. It's in it's, production, right? Yeah, it's be between the conversations and just editing. You know, the rest of the world goes away, and and things just kind of feel semi-normal. Um, Did you ever get that feeling when you're you're working on post and you're thinking, "Well, oh, it's been two weeks since I did this." That's that's two weeks that have passed in the blinking of an eye, but but you know it's two weeks. You can feel grounded in the knowledge that, mm -hmm. well, for this moment, I know how time has passed. And then we go back to time meaning nothing again uh, for another two weeks. 100%, even to the point where, you know, an editing takes a long time. And Heidet said, you know, you guys should <laughs> think about hiring someone to edit your 
your podcasts. And I see what she's saying because, yes, it takes a long time. I would, you know, in a normal world, boy, would I love for that time to be freed up. But I, I'm clinging to this. I, li- I need it. I really do. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's it's funny, actually, in, in listening to Dr. Matt there, he actually made me think of of being with Vadim and, and David and their group last mm-hmm. Thursday. Mm-hmm. And Thursday, and, yeah, Thursday, and you know, and there was there was Qua and um, Coleman, and John Debney, yep. uh, Farina. Am I remembering that name I correctly? Think so. Yeah, and and just and, and a host, a host, a host, a host of people who are our podcast listeners, and and we were tasting the stuff that we were that we were sampling with them, and then they were pulling from their shelves, and we were pulling from our shelves. And we we just hung out for a mm. good long time, and and ultimately when they said, uh, Jason and Joshua, this this has been great, but we cannot do this all night. You both have to leave. Um, we were it was kind of like oh yes, thank you for for hosting us for five hours. <laughs> uh, it is. It has been a genuine pleasure, and and I and I only joke about them showing us the door. Um, it was what two two o'clock our our East Coast time by the time we had to draw that yeah, to our close two two thirty somewhere around there. Yeah. Uh, but what a, what a what a blast! But again, it was a, a sense of place, a sense of being, mm-hmm. a sense of belonging, and and feeling amongst feeling once again. Being amongst people, like missing going to the pub, missing going to restaurants, yeah. missing standing in a room with a group of people drinking and telling stories. And and I, and I think the, the kindest compliment we got uh, last Thursday at that tasting was that for the attendees, it felt like they were participating in a live podcast yeah. that was just for them, nothing. We weren't recording anything on, on our end. Mm-hmm. You and I were our usual selves with our, our back and forth and you know, occasionally taking the piss and then being very loving and caring in our language for one another. And it's just how, how we move and how we operate. And 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 I think they felt like they were in a moment mm-hmm. that was familiar mm-hmm. during a time that is increasingly unfamiliar. Yeah. So, yep. Yeah, you know, we, we have a ton of fun with this. It's it's a silly, a silly, silly podcast. And and it, honestly it does. It, it it makes me emotional when people share what it means to them. Yes. I, I will I, I have to admit something. And I don't know if this happens to you at all, but it sure as hell happens to me. Anytime someone signs off with, you know, <laughs> doctor whatever. Instantly in my head, I've got doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case of loving you. Scoopy doopy doopy doopy. I will tell you this. Yeah. So, so my wife is a PhD. My wife, my wife is a doctor, right. and and I sing that song to her all the time, all the time. All right. Look yeah. at that. Especially if she comes back from the mailbox. And there's there's any form of, of newsletter or, or newspaper <laughs> in it. I always sing that song uh, to her. Doctor, doctor, give me the news. It's so perfect. Oh. Very good. <laughs> um, we also we also received a message from from somebody that we quoted 
on a on a recent episode of of One Nation Under Whiskey. And so, Joshua, this this came in via Facebook, and so you're yeah. the you're the man with the the Facebook machine. Yeah, I will I will leave this in your capable hands. The initial message that we that we brought up on that previous episode was from Kurt Suter, who basically said, you know, your most recent extra extra episode where you talked about sexism in whiskey really loved the conversation. Have you considered maybe dropping the dick jokes? And, you know, we had thought about that in passing, but it really gave us, it gave us pause. And so we said, you know what, let's, let's think about how, how we would do that. And it, it got us nervous that if someone is saying that, especially a man is saying that, how many women out there are potentially saying that in their heads and not, you know, not reaching out. And so we said, okay, yeah, we'll, 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 we'll think about doing that. And so Kurt, after having heard that, wrote to me directly. And, and he says, and I have to apologize. I've got to get really close to my laptop here because my, my old man eyes don't see as they used to see. Uh, so this is from <laughs> Kurt Suter. <laughs> Should I read the whole thing in old man? No, I shouldn't. No. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to you and Jason fucking Sinner. Uh, oh, good Lord. <laughs> So, Kurt says, Joshua, thanks to you and Jason for considering my suggestion for the podcast. When you read it aloud, I certainly came across as holier than thou, and that was not my intent at all. I also mistakenly referenced dick jokes, and really, it was usually just double entendres during banter before interviews. Those little inside jokes always struck me as harmless and sounded a lot like my banter with my male coworkers. When I listened to the Sexism and Whiskey episode, it kind of made me think that maybe it wasn't up to me to decide what was and what wasn't a harmless comment. That's all I was trying to communicate. And, and I think he communicated that, that perfectly. And he goes on, he says, Anyway, I just wanted to apologize for coming across as some kind of moral authority. I was just trying to thank you both for starting the conversation and look upon this as an opportunity for all of us to improve. I enjoy the podcast and the things I've learned from it have helped me enjoy whiskey more. And for that, I'm grateful. Cheers, Kurt. And so... I, I said, I, you know, I, he and I had a, a bit of a back and forth after that. And, and I said to him, first and foremost, I, I never once thought he was coming off as holier than thou, if anything. Agreed. Right? Agreed. I took it as him also taking pause and saying, maybe you should reconsider this. Maybe you should consider your entire audience. Like, I, I, I get that. It wasn't holier than thou. It was like... We all, as people, need to just check ourselves on occasion. Yeah, and, and that's why I, I wanted Kurt to have a chance to, to have his voice heard on, on this episode. Because if, if he, in listening back to it, thought it sounded holier than thou, there might be other listeners who heard it and thought the same thing, whether you and I did or not, and we, yeah. we certainly did not. And so I, I just wanted to give him the floor again to be able to say... Yeah, we're just, we're all in this together, 
right? We're asking questions and we're saying, could we be better here? And I, I think that's a, a very real ongoing conversation for us. And and there's definitely an aspect to it you and I discuss where internally with your group of friends, whether they be male or female, you know, you have your own set of, of internal jokes and, and your own internal sets of humor. What does it look like when you try to extend that? Mm-hmm. And can you then ultimately wade into the wrong waters, mm-hmm. say yeah. the wrong thing in the wrong way at the wrong time to the wrong person? Like it's it's about it's about us being and we've said this previously, it's about being inclusive, not exclusive. Mm-hmm. And and so it, it was telling in Kurt's point there where he said, you know, those double entendres at the beginning of the podcast that sound like the same types of double entendres he might have with his male colleagues, right? Mm-hmm. That that use of the term male again, right? Mm-hmm. There's a group yeah. of people we have those jokes with, but there's a group of people we don't have those jokes with. And maybe instead of being exclusionary, we need to be careful in how we're being inclusionary. So... That's, it's, it's always worth pivoting back to. It's always worth, you know, we're, none of us are done having this conversation. We, we haven't solved anything yet. We're still working and still trying to, as we said in the introduction of today's episode, we're still trying to hashtag be best. And, and we, will, we will continue to try. Uh, Perhaps one day becoming hashtag woke. Oh, gosh. I just say that to see your face. That makes God. me happy. Yeah, sorry. Before we get out of here, and I'm I'm a little cognizant of time here, mm-hmm. you teased me earlier by saying we had some more feedback on the podcast page. We have some uh, Apple feedback. Oh, when you said tease, I thought when I when I said you had a fat ass and stinky breath, I thought that's what you meant. Okay, so you're talking... Seems a little, seems a little harsh. <laughs> you're talking about something I've else. been doing a lot of sitting, though, I'll tell you that. I'm not doing nearly <laughs> as much standing. Uh, yeah, I just didn't so, think you could see it from that angle. Jason, this camera sees all. It's hard to, hard to hide it. I do want to read this comment, which, which showed up on the Apple Pad Costs thing, but I want to let everybody know in case they want to reach out to us like the good Dr. Matt did. Um, or or Kurt, well, Kurt, Facebook message. But if anybody wants to reach out to us, they can email us, questions at onenationunderwhiskey.com. Or they could tweet at us, and we are at One Nation Whiskey. They could Instagram at us, at One Nation Under Whiskey. And then finally, go to Facebook if you're on the Facebooks. Go to the search bar, look for One Nation Under Whiskey, and you will find us there. And whiskey, does whiskey have an E, Jason? Never. Never, Joshua. Never. I'll also, uh, as we're going global and and trying to present more global offerings, if you have any question about our whiskey at any time, drop an email to info at Mm singlecasknation.com. No matter where you are in the world, that will get in front of the right eyes and we will answer your question one way or the other, assuming we know the answer to it. Well, we could always make up something, right? <laughs> um, when did you last check the P.O. box? So, I'm glad you brought that up. I checked the P.O. box on Saturday. And I'm very sad to report 
that we have yet to receive another piece of mail. And so I want our <laughs> listeners to step up to the plate like the good Paul Marco did and maybe send us a postcard, send us a letter. And, and, and you can do so by sending it to P.O. Box 335, Guilford, Connecticut, G-U-I-L-F-O-R-D, Connecticut, 06437. You could put it to the attention of Single Cask Nation, J&J Spirits, One Nation Under Whiskey, Two Jamokes, whatever, whatever you want to do. <laughs> Two Jamokes and a poke. <laughs> okay, give me this. Give me this. I, I, I don't know if this is one star or five star or anywhere in between, but... But let's let's hear this, Joshua. I've I've girded myself for these words. So this is this is a five star rating, and mm. and the title just says extra extra. And the person who posted it, their handle, I guess you would call it, is and it's all one word. But why the male models? <laughs> I don't get that, but I like that a lot. But why the male models? Uh, and it just says, amazing episode. Really great points made about trusting those who are serving and selling you a product. Mm. S- signed up for the newsletter Joshua had mentioned and bought the book Jason had mentioned. Looking forward to learning more. This was in response to the episode where we highlighted the bar that was filling premium bottles with less than premium liquid, and in some cases, mixing different drinks to to create other drink. Highly questionable. Highly questionable. Yeah, our, our dear friends V reached out to us as well and said it was one of his favorite episodes. That, you know, the, the content and then just the way we discussed it. And then when we record our next extra, extra episode actually have some information that was posted to our One Nation Under Whiskey page that I will include in the extra, extra episode. Beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. That's great. Thank you to But Why the Male Models? Am I remembering that correctly? But Why the Male Models? And it's M-A-L-E, not M-A-I-L, just to be. I was curious. I was curious. Uh, thanks thanks to them for taking the time to, to write a review. That's always very much appreciated. Helps other people find us. Makes a recommendation that we're worth listening to. Mm-hmm. For all of those kind people who send in their emails saying how much they enjoy us, please tell your friends. Please, please get them to waste multiple hours of their lives listening to our nonsense mm, as well. Like that. that would be much yeah, appreciated. Like yeah, keep, keep spreading the news. Keep spreading the news. That's it. I'm leaving today. I'm leaving right now. The, the podcast is over, Jason. We have to. It's end over. It. Yeah. We're all leaving. Yeah. Well, of course, of course. Sincere thanks to Kara Lang for her time. One hundred percent. Yes. Thanks to Doctor Matt for his email. Kurt for his conversation. Vadim and David for hosting us as uh, last week that we mentioned. To but why the male models for lovely, lovely feedback. Anyone I'm missing? Forgot to thank the listeners. You forgot to thank me. I was, those were coming. Those oh, okay. were coming. Those okay. are the exit thanks. <laughs> I was just seeing if I'd missed anybody from the episode. No, no, you, you, you did not. You covered all the bases. You did a wonderful job. Well, I, I will say thank you to, to our wonderful in-house graphic designer, Mo, who's responsible for the bourbon label. 
mm. and it has mm-hmm. been turning heads of those who have seen it and really in its own way setting eyeballs on fire ouch in its own way in its own way and of course joshua thank you to you for all of your hard work and post and thank you to our dear listeners for spending their time with us as we all fumble through the latest lockdowns, non-lockdown situations that are all COVID-related. On that lovely note by you, I say two chins. Chin-chin! I am officially leaving this podcast today. Like, when Walk Like an Egyptian came out, mm-hmm. do you think people in Egypt were pissed off? Because Egyptians the- clearly do not walk. I mean, as far as I know, Egyptians do not walk like like the Bengals suggest they walk. But, but my guess is the Egyptian love of the Bengals superseded their being upset at the song. And so I, I just think ah. they're... It's just they were so genuine, and I just think Egyptians saw that, and saw that it was just a harmless song. You know, I remember hearing uh, the the singer. What was her name? Lisa something. I want to say. No and, idea. You could say Jason for a million dollars. What was the name of the lead singer <laughs> of the Bangles? And I would not be able to give you one letter. Not one. Not one letter. Like I, I would go Wheel of Fortune style. Yeah. I would just start naming vowels. Uh, and yeah, then common consonants. Because at but, least with the vowels, you can, you know, you have a one in five chance you're going to get it. I would right. hope. Yeah. Well, I would, I would probably pick sometimes Y. That would be my choice. Oh, that's the wild card. See what I did there? Sometimes Y. y. So what yeah. I was going to say is I heard her say that they're big in Egypt. Big in Egypt, yeah. Mm-hmm. Why would the Bengals not be big in Egypt? Mm-hmm. They're lovely. <laughs>